To the TARDIS and TARDIS Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconstein from Falcon Screen, and we're here with Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello. And freelance writer and critic Rot Nehru. Hello, it's the Doctor here, uh, Jodie Whittaker. Um, no, sorry, it's just me. Wait, how, 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 <laughs> when has Jodie Whittaker ever been a Cockney? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not, N- I, never. You know, I respect the ambition, but I don't know what you were going for. If that's to be your intro for this episode, and I'm not sure what omen that is think, for what is to come. And the closest doctor, Cockney Doctor was what, Sylvester McCoy? And no, no. Okay, way, here's, way here's the secret of Film Fight Club. We hear that that track, we hear the the doctor in the TARDIS, and all of a sudden we are getting hype, folks. Because we are doing, oh my God, it's happening again. Um, We're doing back in time. Back in time. We have gone back. Not one year, not two years, but 20 years. 20 years. April 10th, 1999. Back then, they had this kind of voice in the movie trailers. And the radio was still cool. The summer. Epic voice guy. The (laughs) The world beyond imagination. Actually, I did spend a lot more time watching trailers back then because I remember before YouTube, you had to go into cinemas to uh, watch the Phantom Menace trailer yeah, again and again and but again. But you know, I, I was hot on, on the scene. An early sign of my dedication to the art of cinema was <laughs> on my you know 56K dial-up loading over four and a half hours movie trailers <laughs> from apple.com slash trailers. Wow. They, yeah, wow. the early quick time. Yeah. And it would be in this choppy, horrible, pixelated quality, but you'd be happy with it because oh, yeah. that four and a half hours has to have meant something, goddammit. That is true. And also AOL as my, you know... You used AOL? Wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I don't think that ever Malcolm really Turnbulls. spread to Australia. Uh, because Windows 98, guys. What are you talking about? Oh, Windows Windows 95 was where it's at because they had those little ski game where the Yeti would come Oh, yeah, you. yeah, yeah. I know. Ski free. Yeah, yeah. That's, 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 I, what's the connection between Malcolm Turnbull and AOL? Wasn't that his... What was his company? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. No. He it wasn't of, AOL. It wasn't it was, AOL. Um, it was something else. Something else. Oh, he brought, broadband or something. I'm just going to ask Jeeves. Just give me a second. Yeah. Was it... Uh, uh, well, we're gonna we've done our research. One tell? No, it wasn't one tell. No, it was something else. It we we, we, we will find. We'll, I, I if, don't know because I was in a poor country like India where Windows ninety five was still a luxury. Well, guys. I'm just gonna find. Just gonna check on Elton. So basically, here. we're enjoying 1999. You know, it's it's so it's, awesome. It's great for all the reasons we're talking about. Yeah, like a lot's happening around now. Like, um, there's a new richest person in the world as of two days ago. Um, the guy who runs Microsoft. Bill, uh, his... Yeah. Oh. Okay. Don't pretend oh, wow. you don't know who Bill Gates is. All <laughs> we, right. We don't want to ruin the future. Yeah. For everyone. Bill. Yeah, we're not, we're not rooting the future for anyone, so we're not going to give any spoilers there, but just one thing we want to say, there's a lot of coverage on Y2K at the moment, and look, we don't want to say too much, but look, prepare, be ready, bunker down. Things will get back to normal for a few more years to come, so just be ready for when it ticks over. But oh, also, man, like, Y2K. guys, 1999, the last, last year before we... Roll on to the 21st century. Yeah, but really, the 21st century actually begins with the year 2001, okay? <laughs> yeah, damn straight. <laughs> it's so stupid that, like, yeah, we didn't have a year zero. 
No, I mean, no. The first year was one. Yeah. So it's been 2,000 years when you reach 2001. Thank you, Ro- Rome, for, for, for screwing that as we was over. Uh, but it was a lot happened this year. Lots happening around now. Um, actually, a few interesting parallels with that may or may not be parallels of modern day. Um, there was recently an election where the incumbent government of New South Wales was returned. Um, the Cranberries are about to release a new album, and next month Eurovision is happening in Israel. So all things that. We have no Cranberries fans here, do we? I know, but also, what is Eurovision? And why do we care about it? it, Come on, we don't need to play this dumb. (laughs) Okay, Eurovision was a big thing in 1999. Come on. Stick to the script. (laughs) In Australia? Yeah, it was on yes. S- Dude, it was, it was, it was sort of SBS. I know. Oh, okay. yeah. That was still a thing 20 years ago. Wow. Yeah, I've watched SBS. it every year since we came to Australia. Dude, wow. ABBA. I know. Yes. That yes. was the early 70s. Yeah, Waterloo. It was an original. It had to be an original for the competition. I know, but that's for like European people. I didn't think Australia Dude, was oh, on the board. You don't look. Okay, we knew ABBA twenty years ago. Have you heard of a thing called Muriel's Wedding? <laughs> yeah, it was a big, <laughs> yes. I mean, five years ago. Yeah, that is. Oh five, right, five years ago. Five years ago. Five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's a big year for music. Um, just a couple of days ago. Um, there's a new Backstreet Boys album. Um, <gasps> oh and my god, Millennium. I've been listening to it on repeat. Yeah, yeah. I love that way. Boys. With the with the white suits. And yep, the, that's it. The blue shirts. The, the, the first single I want that way just and then you look at the album cover and you can just kind of hear like oh girl like it's that kind of thing back that that didn't leave my car for cd player for like two three years exactly Uh, and that makes you larger than life it's it's been a weird time for music you know um this is new song that just got to number one today no scrubs it got to number one today nice wow who's listening to it who are Uh, these people and uh, yeah, but look, there's a lot happening in the world of music everywhere, and more importantly, movies. Phantom Menace comes out soon. Everyone's excited. We're all excited. Yes, yeah, so excited, so excited. And uh, there's quite a bit. Um, Wild World West is coming out soon. Office Space just got released. Sweet. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But more importantly, we are talking about the films that are out this week. Uh, there have been three big releases. Uh, last two days ago, The Matrix was released in cinemas in Australia. We are doing a spoiler-filled review of The Matrix. Um, so if you haven't seen it, just avert your ears. Yeah, and listeners of 1999, you wouldn't want us to ruin the thing that no one is going to stop talking to you about for the next three years. But I should spoil the future no more. No, we, we also be doing reviews of 10 Things Ahead About You, which was released last week in the United States. And it's coming out here in June, but we've got a bit of a sneak preview and it's yeah, one you might want to see. features one of our very own Heath Ledger. As well as one that just opened about a week or so ago on April 1st in Australia, which has some interesting parallels to 10 Things I Hate About You. Yes, Cruel Intentions, a remake. Of, it's, not, it's not a remake, but it's an adaptation of a novel, which was also made with, an, with another parallel with um, The Matrix, because... Uh, Dangerous Liaisons had Keanu Reeves. Oh. What are his early, early roles? Yes. Yeah. So we, first Back, we are, Yeah. The, the Keanu Reeves is, is, is a <laughs> goddamn action star. He is incredible. So yes, we are talking about The Matrix, uh, starring Keanu Reeves of Point Break fame and The Bus That Would Never <laughs> Stop and Carrie Ann Moss. Speed. The Bus That Wouldn't Slow Down. Sorry, yes. the bus that would slow down. Actually, yeah, if it or it can't slow down, the bus like he that wouldn't. couldn't slow down. Yeah, look, if you're at home, this is like the last time the Simpsons is going to be good, so enjoy it while you can. Yeah. Um, you know, actually, what was released uh, seven days ago? Futurama. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah I wonder if sure. this could. Yeah. yeah. What do you think about Futurama? Do you think it has some legs? Uh, uh, yeah. Not not long enough legs, unfortunately. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the Nixon, the, the opening episode with Nixon head was pretty funny. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll give him that. I'm more excited for this West Wing that's going to come out Wait, you didn't soon. like the Futurama? No, it's actually not that great. 
it's pretty good though. It's like it's such <laughs> fun, relaxing. It like put on an episode of Futurama and chill out, kind of entertainment. Fry is the most frustrating Some character. Episodes like really mm. Some episodes are really bad, but they had a few great ones. I'm like Family Guy more, which came out a few no. months ago. Okay, this is the first fight of Film Fight Club. <laughs> oh yeah, Family Guy, and then but yeah, la- latest both, both shows. The discuss. first time they fought in 1999, <laughs> <laughs> the young okay. whippersnappers of film. It's okay, Stewie. It's okay. It's okay. So yes, The Matrix, also starring Carrie Ann Moss, who may be next year in a very good film with an upcoming director, which we don't want to spoil at all because you shouldn't hear any spoilers from Memento ever. And then we are. T- talking yes yeah, so it's not a film you want to spoil yeah yeah yeah. no and also starring Lawrence fishburne who um i know from my high like, class watching of othello yeah and uh hugo weaving australia's own hugo weaving hugo hello hugo sorry i'm thinking of notting hill it comes out in a couple of weeks and uh hugo weaving starring hugo 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 <laughs> um, from the excellent Australian film Proof with Russell Crowe, also an up-and-coming actor who's doing quite well for himself. Now, this is look, you, you, this is set in the, and filmed in and around Sydney, actually. You can see Town Hall, Martin Place, and very much based in, on and inspired by a lot of uh, Japanese cinema and anime. It tells the story of Thomas Anderson, who gets thrust into the world of... Uh, so, a computer hacker by night, Neo, who's thrust into the world of these underground criminals. And we learn more and more about their world as he's introduced to what the Matrix is. At the uh, Obviously, at the not what Agent Smith wants for him, played by Hugo Weaving, a very terrifying visage as he wanders through southern Sydney and parts of Chinatown where they filmed this. And St. James. They shut down St. James to do this. And the fountain I walk by. And you can see them sweep over town hall at one point. Oh, I think, yep, we, we, need, we need to say what the Matrix is. We need to say what the Matrix is at this point. Yeah, may as well. Okay, so the Matrix. Is everyone ready? Bum, bum, bum. Yep. It is. Da-da-da. So we don't actually, the Matrix is we don't actually live in the world. We live in a computer simulation made by machines, which is designed to keep us as a battery to fuel the mach- actual world, which is the machine world. And we're kept in this ignorant bliss where we can wander around in this very green world. There's a green tinge to any scene that doesn't take place in the actual world or Zion. And it's, yeah, so it's quite terrifying. I remember watching this for the first time and it's quite a revelation for someone who at least later in life got to know a lot of the cinema this was based on seeing this sort of story play out on the scale it did for the first time was and I think is still very thrilling yeah and look as as someone who was young and impressionable and realized I had interest in philosophy this was probably one of the first films where I realized oh my god you know the brain in the vat experiment which I'm like oh my god you know are we really living what kind of yeah, thing so it, that made, had, it uh, made you feel more cool than you were yeah it had that kind of effect on me as well i think it's like in, in inception i think was that for a lot of people 11 years later that oh man like a smart guy gets me cool guns <laughs> you know <laughs> so, uh, another great fit from the guy who may make this film in a year memento, from now yeah, yeah. um what a memento right the matrix was a weird one to revisit for me because i was one of those kids whose mind it blew um and I, I wondered how much it would hold up uh, because I actually haven't seen this movie in a, quite a while, like probably seven or eight years. And in the meantime, I've loved a lot of um, other Wachowski's films I've seen. I went back and rewatched Bound. Uh, no, sorry, saw Bound for the first time. Um, I think it it's terrific. It's a really nice little indie indie thriller um, with a very similar 
style which really struck me in that film and strikes me here to the matrix really interesting inventive camera work and production design um i really liked their adaptation to come in the future of cloud atlas i really love speed racer so i think they've got a lot of talent um but weird the matrix weirdly fell flat for me in a world where we've come to know the concept so there's no mind-blowing you know about just the concept of a movie set in a virtual world anymore um that tricks you into believing the virtual world is the real one and takes you on the journey of Neo. When that doesn't um, blow your mind as much anymore, you're left with the real impact of the narrative told within this and the characters. And I found myself loving the craft, but weirdly emotionally uninvolved. I don't think any of the characters are represented in a realistically human way enough for this to have as strong an emotional impact as it should. It, it's interesting that you talk about that because often a lot of the films that you've seen as a kid and you revisit them, uh, I think part of you still realizes that you're watching <coughs> them still, you know, the child in you still Maybe. watching them. So for me, it was still like, oh my God, I still remember this scene that I was blown away by. So it is kind of like you are sort of almost clouded by nostalgia that you can't avoid to an extent. So it's interesting that you could actually keep that aside because I, I tried couldn't to. do that I couldn't do that and when I was rewatching it even though it's, I know this was inventive back at the time look it it's great in a lot of ways I'm not here to say that The Matrix is a bad movie I'm not going to go that far I think it it yeah the action's so well put together it looks so cool um, the camera work some of the trickery is fantastic here I love that it aimed to create a huge world like it's sort of like a Star Wars-esque movie and that it's introducing you to this whole new universe of good and evil. Um, I love the idea of using phones to teleport around. That's such a cool, like, um, retro-futuristic touch. Um, there's lots of great things about it. I think I rewatched this recently for the first time after having watched it for a while. I still enjoy, as I thoroughly enjoyed back then, the hallway sequence and the train sequence and many, many more in the scene in the apartment complex, which I'm going to go on to talk about in a minute. But there are some things about it in retrospect, which, again, put some characterization do fall flat. Um, Trinity, many other characters were just told are hackers. We're not really given much background about them. The romance between Neo and Trinity, yeah, it's the, not the especially strong. The romance is strong. goddamn awful. And then it comes uh, to ground the ending of the movie and it's like, where did that come from? For, but for me... I think the craft and what they managed to paint on such a large canvas exceeds any of the deficiencies in the storytelling. And it's not just in terms of bullet time, which we'll talk about. It's not just in terms of um, the scale the images they're able to produce using the motion capture, but actually that would be the incorrect term, but um, the basically the camera rig they had set up. But things as simple as exposition, which are frustrating in any normal film, are beautifully done yes. here. The sequence with Morpheus The script is beautifully crafted in real, that department. Um, the wonderful scene where deja vu happens and you have the super cool moment where they turn around and yeah. you don't have to explain why it's significant, but oh my God, you know I agree. everything's about to go down. I think that scene's amazing. Um, I think this is a perfect script in terms of structure um, and the way that it drips information to the audience, as you were saying. It's only in the levels of believable humanity that I think it falls flat. Like, you know, the, in this hard-to-believe-in romance between Trinity and Neo that's like, have you ever encountered how real people fall in love with each other? Um, and then <laughs> Neo, like Keanu Reeves, he's I love perfect. him in John... He's, he's, it's weird. It, he's kind of like this sleepy stoner who is like, the world isn't real. And he's just like, yeah, okay. Like he never shows that <laughs> yeah, much okay. emotion until one scene where he's like, no, no, this isn't real. And it's like, 
so um, so fake. <laughs> He's not a good actor. In but this. The, the, the thing is, he, he has this real limited range. He can do collected, removed, and intense at the same time. It's much better in John Wick, but it works ninety percent of the time I, here. I the John Wick is his role. It's in his ideal role. Dracula, this, Brem, in Dracula and oh, in this, in he's Budapest, really bad. He's not as bad in this as he was in Dracula, but he's not good. That was yeah, that was that was quite bad. Um, interestingly, though, I was just the Brand Castle, and uh, they cite that as one of the better films retelling the Dracula engine. But still, it was not very well done. Right. Part part of the problem that the Matrix faces, and uh, I think uh, which is probably it's uh, undoing as much as anything else, is that so much of the Matrix is now part of pop culture. Well, that's right? why I was saying that just the, the bare idea of like, the fact that bullet times e- exists isn't enough to blow my mind anymore, so I'm yeah. trying to engage it more on the other levels. But also, also like, just on a similar we've level... We've just absorbed. We all just know the, yeah. the whole ideas about the Matrix, computer you know, world, Agent Smith and all that. It's part of the world, culture. That's part of Red pill, blue pill, and what it means. Yeah, and what exactly. it come to mean, especially in the alt-right scenario. But let's not how, go there tonight. Let's not go I, there. I, I don't see, actually, I don't see how that's relevant at all. Yeah. So just, just generally about how things have been co-opted and how the Matrix has now come to mean a lot more things about how people think about it it's difficult to see that it's just a movie anymore that's what I'm trying to get at and I think part of that is how do you is the magic still there as a childlike wonder because that was what it was for me when it came out it yeah. wasn't necessarily about what the movie means in terms of pop culture or what it means well, there, beyond a certain thing it was mostly about there, I think as a kid it showed me what was possible in cinema I think there's a sense of that wonder still there but not it's not the not as strong as some other films um, that used to be that I think I, th- I think like Empire Strikes Back for example oh and the and, but it still has more of a sense of wonder the, this is this is yeah I, it, the, I admire no, it the two I, things, I generally like that's a question I'm not trying to yeah, the, yeah. The, the two things I would give The Matrix are that you look at its successes including its own sequels and likes of Equilibrium and it is far and above better another thing and I look at it in terms of the film that's going to come out next year Shrek which in a very different two sense years. Two years, excuse me, yeah, two years. Um, Shrek popularized like, more than a lot of other films. Actually, no, Ants, we'll go back to Ants, where it popularized um, the idea of mainstream actors instead of character actors or voice actors doing these roles. In, I don't remember, I can't recall a film as significant as The Matrix where known actors were suddenly the ones not, you didn't have stunt doubles all the time. Yes, Chad is like he did an doing amazing job, act. but doing their own martial arts. The amount of training they did for any number of action sequences in this film, well, it made it much more riskful, it made it much more engaging. Okay. Now you've uh, opened up the kind of Matrix complaints. <laughs> yes. Here we go. What's yeah. up with the martial arts in this movie? Like, okay, it's really cool, yeah. right? They, but this movie, you mentioned the anime influence, which is very strong. Um, but I think this movie is riffing on a whole bunch of different influences, and one of them is definitely Hong Kong martial arts films. Yeah, right? yeah yes. the police story and the Jackie Chan. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's, I think, oh, man... Part of the problem with this movie as an adult is that I can kind of see how juvenile it is in a way. And like, here's a bunch of things we find cool and we've mashed them all together into a soup. And that's the Matrix. That's true. Like um, fetish leather gear. That's cool. Um, you know, Terminator 2 future. That's cool. Yeah. Like, Bla- uh, you know, um, Blade Runner scorched out the sun. Hong Kong martial arts movies. And, and cyberpunk. Strange and days. And cyberpunk. Joining the mnemonic. These were all precursors. Yeah, and this was William Gibson. the ultimate... Uh, iteration of that genre. Yeah, but but even the things that make the you know the Hong Kong martial arts movies cool, for example, the camera work and the wide shots. The camera work is really good here. The but this this fantastic. one, I can, the slick editing kind of takes away from a lot of that. It's not. Yeah, it's not the the what the best in that department, but it's far from the worst. It's probably one of the yeah. better American attempts at filming a martial arts ever. And part of that is because Yan Wu Ping is the choreographer, but. 
it, it's just one of those moments where there's the, a lot of posturing. Yeah, it's one of the At moments. The dojo scene. I was about to get to that. Yeah. That's one of the moments when the dumbness of this really shines through because it's like step one: the world isn't real, Neo. You know, your whole life's been a dream. Step two: time to learn kung fu. You know, like, and I know they they put a little line in the script to acknowledge that. Like, here's a bunch of other training, but it's probably really boring. So let's go to this one. But it's like, dude, you're teaching this guy how to exist in the world for the first time ever, and they they go straight to kung fu. Did Neo unwittingly get rescued by like the kung fu association of the of the real world? Are these like just like the kung fu fanatics? Everyone in Zion knows kung fu. But is it? I like to think that it's just like this ship, like. Um, the mad captain Lawrence Fishburne Morpheus is obsessed with kung fu There's so if I bring you boxing. on my ship you have to spar with me and we're going to hire a programmer <laughs> to write fighting game simulations but, okay. and blah 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 uh, so for whatever reason they <laughs> kung fu is the way that we fight in a world where there's no rules because the Wachowskis thought it was cool and they thought trench coats were cool so we do it in trench coats if they love trench coats so much why don't they have like trench coats on the ship like why when they go into the matrix why aren't they wearing like the raggy woolly things that, that like because that's their self identity clearly i'm thinking about this way too deeply I, I, you can't actually, think about yeah, the matrix you, way you, too deeply no you, you are chris cuz honestly like as as okay Why i was kung fu? seven i was i was 7 years old and if somebody told me that you know if you're living in a reality and you need to relearn everything i would totally believe the fact that i would have to learn kung fu the first thing I would not think I need yeah, survival skills. Yeah, as an adult, skills. you're like, you that's know? a bit weird. <laughs> but but as a kid, clearly it makes absolute sense that Kung Fu is, is yep. an essential ingredient to survive in an alternate universe. Yep. Of course it I, is. I believe it. And, yeah, and trench coats. And, cool. Another thing that made this film just so abundantly relevant is that we, do, we joked about Y2K earlier, but this was such a formative time. It was an alienating time. People weren't sure of the future in any sense. And this tapped into the, oh, we're going to the 21st century. What is this? All the cyberpunk films that preceded that tried to do this. And it was, and it would have been, I think, even more confronting if we didn't have that light element to it. Um, the kung fu sequences, the ridiculous sequence in the train, the idea that um, the, the opening sequence where Spitz says, no, your men are already dead and you have no idea what's about to happen. You see them leaping across the rooftops of Sydney. Um, it's confronting, but there's a sort of redeeming and comforting wonder to it at the same time. I think that's what The Matrix look, tapped into look, so well. Okay. There totally is a wonder. It's just, it's just that it's so goddamn juvenile. Not just for, you know, I've, I've made my kung fu rant, but here's what I can't not see watching this as an adult. It's like, you know, we're not part of the system, man. Like, the Matrix is a metaphor for you just don't like your life and you want to rebel against a generic anything. It's like this apolitical, I hate society thing. Which is why Smith is designed in the way he is. Yeah, exactly. And Morpheus, is. there's a very loaded line where Morpheus is explaining the Matrix to Neo for the first time and he says, you feel the, ma- the Matrix every time you pay your taxes, every time you go to work, every time you go to church. So it's like, I don't want you God or your money. You know, yeah, Mom, I want to listen to Rage Against the Machine, which plays over the end credits. There's something so yeah. just like a really I, immature approach to an anti-authoritarian anarchy. Yeah, it is an it's anarchist. So simple-minded. I agree, it's an anarchist red dream. But but when you're like seven or ten, it kind of also appeals to that but, inner child in you. It's a but, childish, wonderful film. But I'm going to go further in that. Another thing that you know you can just go with as a kid is that now that we've decided we're against society, we can just shoot everybody, which Morpheus basically says when he says an agent can take over any mind in the Matrix. So yes, basically you should think that it's us and them, right? This movie doesn't create much empathy for the other people in the Matrix. 
Um, evidence of that is the fact that the movie thinks it's cool that they're going around shooting up police officers and guards because they could get used and are unwittingly being used as pawns against. But the utilitarian argument there is that if they are used as pawns against them, that they will not be able to, you know, rescue Morpheus or free people from the Matrix entirely. <sighs> yeah, but the and Matrix yes- is not asking us to think on that level. The Matrix is basically going, all right, you're, you're cool because you're one of us. Um, with the cool guys who know okay. that the system is bad and and corporations and churches are stupid, so you get so you're entitled to shoot other people who were just like you, but weren't as lucky to run into us in the face. Okay, you Glenn, know, like oh god, go go back in time and try to explain utilitarianism to like the ten year old or whatever version of you, and but try to make doesn't, sense. Doesn't it feel so weird? Glenn was just. Glenn was younger than that, but 10-year-old Glenn was just blown away like, by the all they could have said in the, in the lobby. All they needed to say is that everything in the computer lobby is a computer simulation, and I wouldn't have been like, this is a bit weird. It's essentially like mass slaughter of innocence, that the, and the movie's like, do-do-do-do-do-do, hey, isn't this cool? The like, big- it's, they haven't thought about their ideas that deeply for all of the, the beauty and, and the conception. And, and, you, and you know what? There was On the scale of what it was in the first film, I think a lot of people, as... If, even if they were frustrated that could accept that the scale of the destruction in the second film which we just find Neo flying through the city in one sequence that actually did jar me the wrong way that just I couldn't believe it can I um go do a brief interlude of why the sequels were stupid when it's uh, you know what the f- second one I think was no no, no. there were great things about the sequels they were just not, not the third one no not the third one the second The Matrix Reloaded definitely has high points but yeah. at the end of this movie it's it's like Neo, you've become the one, and you're thinking, God. And I, the point of that final shot when Neo flies up towards the camera is like, oh my God, what can he do now? You know, it's and the implication of the story is everything has changed. Like this guy's become awakened to his powers. And earlier in the movie, we see other people who could become like Neo, and they're doing telekinetic things, like flying things through the air or shifting spoons. Right. So that leads your mind to think. God, what will Neo be capable of? You know, like when he's in the corridor after he revives himself, the the code of the Matrix ripples around him. So they're implying he's becoming some godlike entity. It turns out he can stop bullets and fly. <laughs> like in Matrix Reloaded, they they stopped imagining more things he could do and went back on how powerful this guy was. Would imagine if we actually did see a movie about what they described the one being able to do, a guy who could um reshape the matrix around him like a guy who's walking through scenes recoding so it and it was some metaphysical drama basically of the best 30, with... the best 30 seconds of infinity war when thanos was fighting doctor strange yeah exactly yeah, that. that's yeah. that's what they were implying neo would be and then they were just like ah can't be bothered oh look the sequels were disappointing um, yeah. bro- except for the freeway chase and uh, the excellent sequence in the um mansion the, the but biggest... again, it's like he's fighting yeah. with Kung Fu and they've just implied that he's... Why Why does he never do a shift the spoon inception like making buildings attack people, you know, the wall crumbles out and hits you in the face kind of thing? It was just a failure of imagination. Look, the, the biggest question around the Matrix is not about the Matrix. It's about uh, whether the Matrix actually amounts to anything more than pop culture references now. Like, what is it something which can hold up as an entity in its whole or is it just something which we've amalgamated the best parts of it in our own minds, and now it's just become something that we look back fondly, but I actually think doesn't it's more interesting as a piece of film history than yeah. Yeah. a film actually, of itself. That's yeah. right. I think the juvenilia of it is the reason why it won't be timeless. <laughs> juvenilia. It's so dated to a particular point in 1999. Um, there's something... The, the, the cyberpunk I, aesthetic I, doesn't age well. That's the thing. But it's not just the cyberpunk aesthetic. It's well, just it doesn't age well. I like it, but it doesn't age well for many. Within this world the leather fetish kind of punk gear doesn't fully fit in. Like, I don't completely buy it. Something about the way this was just 
like it it doesn't feel like they live in that world. It feels like an affectation, which a lot of the style, like the kung fu, a lot of the stylistic elements just don't fully fit together. And a big problem with this is it's a, a narrative trope which is incredibly dated now, which people have largely rebelled against, which is your special. Because yeah, you're the one. You're you're special because you're special. It's the ultimate wish fulfillment, and it again, it's super immature. And Neo is an anagram for one. But it's not about a person who um, really tries to make themselves into something or gets changed by something else in some way. It's just about a guy who gets told he's great, so therefore he is great because he's the king. Well, the biggest arc and who anyone goes through is actually Agent Smith. That only comes up in the second film. Hugo Weaving is actually incredible in The Matrix. Yeah. He's, um, he's actually scary. One of the best villain turns in recent years. I'm, and he's just amazing in general. I think yeah. Hugo Weaving is a great actor. Well, I'm just wondering, as good as he was, I'm he's wondering scary why he didn't deploy his height so much. The guy is six foot four. Like He's a terrifying visage. And I guess they wanted to make the fight look more fair between him and Neo in the train station. But as it is, um, so we'll touch where... Just almost out of time. We're going to be talking more about Cruel Intentions, The Matrix, and 10 Things Ahead About You on the podcast. And we will also be back next week. So if you're listening to the podcast, just keep on listening. And if you are uh, listening to the studio or listening to us in the studio and outside, just, uh, yeah, subscribe to the podcast and tune in next week for more Film Fight Club. Who is listening in the studio? <laughs> Sorry, that is that was a profile. <laughs> we, no, no one, we are listening in the studio. But There's I, someone I hope, hiding in the corner, isn't there, Glenn? I, I, I hope not. It's the, it's the, it's the <laughs> Matrix. They're always around. Um, Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Good night. And that was Rage Against the Machine. We are Film Fight Club. It was, I still remember, and I think we're going back to that point about how the, the affectionate memory we have of watching The Matrix for the first, even fifth time, but hearing that song, hearing it for the first time, and then everyone playing it at school, like it was the coolest thing in our Discman's. And that's, we have to, we have Discman's. to recognize. Yes, Discman's. Wow. But we, we, we have to remember, I, aside from, I think, Star Wars The Phantom Menace that came out later that, that year, and maybe the Lord of the Rings, and maybe the first Harry Potter film. I can't remember in that era any films where anyone in the Game of Thrones sense was. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was invested. It was a bigger cultural phenomenon than was a film in and of itself, as it, I think we've seen. Yes, as I think we've seen in later it's, years. But it struck a chord because it was so of the time, and that's what's stopping it to um, stand up on its own. As to answer. Uh, Virat's question. In my, yeah. Is that, is that a, actually a problem from our own perception of how we attach so much nostalgia I to think it we've or become, the film itself? I think it's the film itself. I think it's not speaking completely universally because, um, in terms of this idea of not feeling at ease in your life and searching for something more because it dates that so much with the aesthetic of um, like no mom, you know, rage against the machine, but the honestly, simple-minded us versus them. Doesn't it... Like actually it's really, make it universal it's because movie, it appeals to kids a, of that age. It's a, no, it's a movie about like the childish will to just say fuck you to everything. But to, to, don't to all kids out. of that age feel like that? 
But that is such a childish impulse, you know? Not, like, this movie but, isn't speaking actually, on a deep level. No, I, I, I'm going to qualify that. The sequence where Thomas Anderson is singing in a cubicle, and it's the exact same as every hundred other cubicle, and, the, and his name purposely chosen, I think, for the purpose to emphasize that he is just another cog in this machine, given it is a fairly common name. And when he's daily mundane life, he's frustrating boss. These are elements that aren't meant to relate or appeal to children. They're meant to strike a chord with people who are in their 20s There were so or 30s many movies like this in 1999. Fight Club. Office Space. Being John Malkovich. Office Space. I feel Brazil American Beauty. Yeah. All of these films deal with this concern. But The Matrix does it, I think, in a particularly childish level by not creating empathy for the people who aren't like Thomas Anderson. It, you know, it has this kind of like juven- juvenile rage. Like, I-, I hate the system and fuck you if you're but, not with me and hating the system. Yeah, but also at, at the same time, I, I look back at, you know, when I was that kind of, you know, that age and I kind of felt like that, the rebellious teenager and, you know, feel like the world is against me. So I I can see that. I mean, it's not, I think the demographic it's going for I think it really does hit its target pretty well. Ah, oh, man. It's just, there's just something embarrassing about going back to this kind of thinking and, and thinking that at one point you didn't have a problem with that. Maybe there's a cringe element. Of I, I, I know, but, but I'm also like mature enough to recognize that I was that kind of an asshole when I was that age. Yeah, but when when you grow old, it's hard to go buy, completely buy something that reflects your naive um Simplicity. I, you know, I think, though, the one thing like that... So much effort and budget put towards something so immature and its conception of the world. But the, the instances where innocent people are shot, um, the bit that keeps coming back to me is the SWAT team security officers at the lobby, certainly the four police officers treating the kills at the beginning of the film. It causes you to... Qu- and certainly there's a different level of empathy you feel for them. They blow they, up the, the skyscraper. Whole, the whole, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, Macquarie Tower, actually, the premier's office. During that's what, work that's what, hours. That's what they blew up. Um, yeah, Bob Carr just got re-elected then. And... <laughs> The whole thing is that you have a different level of empathy for those people versus the amount of the individuals who Joe Pantoliano's character kills or the people who die in the course of trying to protect Neo. Which suggests, and which that, suggests that, hold on, are these people really alive? Can we feel empathy for them if they are not aware of their full circumstance situation? It but, calls us to question, um, what is the value of life if you are not able to um, if you are forced to experience it to this but, measure in this But the Matrix isn't going on that level because it never asks us to treat anyone who's not part of Neo's, Neo and Morpheus's crew or the agents as a person. There's no. It would be interesting if we got to see, really empathize and get to know a person in the Matrix who doesn't know they're within the Matrix. But that ask, would have added a whole different level where it actually would have been asking these questions. But, ask I don't the, think but it does ask the philosophical question. That's the thing. When Neo first learns about the Matrix, um, the character says to him, he says, can I go back? And he says, yeah, but would you really want to? Which again raises that same sort of issue. And the one character who does want to go back to the Matrix who who would be happily knowing that he lives in that circumstance. Actually, no, sorry, I correct myself. Um, when he wanted to reboot himself, he actually, the Joe Pantoliano character, would have not known. He would he have been an to actor. everything, yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. That would have been a much more interesting film. I would have liked to have uh, interacted more with the individuals in the Oracle's office. And that would have been fascinating. Certainly, I think we, that was what they tried to do in the sequels, but very poorly. Work, no. Yeah. The... Do you see? Do you guys do you see that like with us or against us thing in Matrix? Like, yeah, I, yeah, oh, totally. But also at the same time, I, I can think, recognize why that would appeal to yeah. a kid. Right? But Neo, Neo was like one of them. The only reason why he <laughs> gets to and he gets to not be one of them is because he was chosen 
in a prophecy. You know, it's like. But but that's damn. that that's that's, that's, <laughs> that's the other thing, right? I mean, uh, it's the wish fulfillment. Everyone wishes they. Everyone thinks they were Neo. No one. No one thinks that if the Matrix were real, I would get to be the police officer who gets blown up <laughs> and killed forever. But I, but know. I think that's that's kind of the narrative genius of the film, right? Where it is working on such a simplistic level, it actually understands exactly why it is emotionally manipulating you, but not in a way which is conceited. I think it's no, being emotionally manipulative. I think it doesn't just, care about those individuals. That's right. It's just simple. It's just it's just simple. But why simple? And it's, it's complex bad. in some simple is just simple. Simple is bad when it when it says something that as an adult you feel uncomfortable with like oh. it's okay to kill people who don't believe in our ideal because we're on the side of good and as an adult you think hmm maybe it's not so good to have a piece of mess of media sending this message to people but at a really impressionable it, uh, age I, I, no, no i don't think it's morality like, should it's, be it's controlled like a jihadi mentality you know? <laughs> oh wow i, 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 think, I, I think we I just think escalated too much it is or like any all any whole any religious holy crusade you know it's like well, we're it, on the side of good what well, certainly so has been read as a religious parable yeah um but i think yeah. there's Another way it can be, and certainly has been read, and I think it's what the filmmakers would want us to empathize with more, in that they don't view it as a, well, you could say it as such, they view it as a conflict where these are liberators, and that they can't, and that they acknowledge it in the context of any conflict that there may very tragically, I don't agree with this, yeah. what do you very tragically be casualties. I just wish they spoke about this, acknowledged it in some way, or you know, made a movie that was more about the act of liberating people and the conflict of liberating people, which they didn't try to get into again until the ending of Matrix Reloaded. But to an extent, Matrix never went that deeply in that department. Yeah, uh, for the most part, it's about blowing things up. Yeah, why do we, we you know, it's almost, it's weird because we are, as I was saying before, like the innocent bystanders. That's our position, you know, in the Matrix society as the audience. But the film wants us to believe, it flatters us, by leading us to making us empathize with the people in the upper level, you know, so we feel like they are us, but that's not yeah. who we are. No, we're, no, not, we're, we're not special people. We're who, not. We're just part of the matrix. Know, we just, we could also be killed. Ridiculous talents that just awoke, yeah. you know, one day because because that's how it was meant to be. So we are just everybody else. Yeah, but we kind of. But it's the movie is coming from a super like elite kind of perspective of royalty. Oh, and if you're an elite, you're a hacker. Is. <laughs> and, and, and remember, but, being but, a hacker then but, had not that it doesn't have a cachet now, but it has a very different cachet yeah. back in 1999. This is the reason why all of these things just strike me in this way that I don't quite feel comfortable with. Like this is just so immature. <laughs> it, it, is, it is. Look, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing that the film is not immature. It's not dated. That it's not limited by its own conceptual design. What I'm trying to say is, at the same time, there is a part of me that just relishes in the fact that. It got the simple things right. It's an amazing act of craft as an action film. I don't think there's been something um, equaling that level till Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. And, and just we have to remember, like Mad Max Fury Road had so many ridiculous scenes and twists and plot turns. The Matrix is very simply plotted. He goes into the real world. He goes to meet the Oracle. Morpheus gets captured. They it's capture a classic Morpheus. hero's narrative. It's a classic hero's journey narrative with like King Arthur and and Merlin, kind of you know wizard mentor. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very archetypical. And I think we have to acknowledge the amount of people who, like, I think ourselves included, the, how the film has been so important to, or had such an impact. My former partner, it was her and her absolute favorite film. It and had a for, huge for many of the reasons me. we've discussed the, tonight. The camera work and some of the visual trickery in this is still so cool. You know, like the, the camera going down Neo's throat when the liquid spills into oh, him. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, I'm trying not to mention full time. Um, you know, the way that 
things fly past really fast and then stop as they yeah. zoom in and out of computer programs. Mm-hmm. There's such genius to the, the visualization. Especially because, you know, you think about CGI it's, now and how much kind of mechanics yeah. are about it. This was actually the, done with actual camera the trickery. The creativity yeah. in there has not been matched in a really long time. No. From a technical perspective, it was marvelous. It remains marvelous. That is The Matrix. It is available well on DVD. <laughs> and um, I remember a friend of mine brought over like in the, in 2003 CDs, which all collectively had The Matrix on it. And uh, I remember yeah, when I, don't I, think, was, I don't think I wouldn't recommend watching it that way. Yeah, when I was part of like, you know, early high school, like, you know, year seven, year eight, this used to be part of the club, you know, to be part of the cool group. People would ask you, have you seen The Matrix? And if you said no, then you were denied entry into the cool group. So I remember, I remember, I remember that. the cool group, 10 Things I Hate About You. <laughs> yes, which came out last week in America. It is coming out later this year in Australia. It is starring Australia's own Heath Ledger. And Julia Stiles. It has a number of other performers. We have, I'm sorry, what's her name? Alex Mack. Um, oh, uh, Larissa Olinek. Yep, she plays Bianca. We have Joseph Gordon-Levitt from playing Cameron James. What a name from <laughs> from Third Rock from the Sun. And this is it. Has actually quite a really great cast. David Crumb holds Gabrielle Union and Alison Janney in a small role. It is a reworking I more of Alison Janney. Yes, uh, her uh, she was definitely writer goals for a long time. I was like, I wish I had that kind of creativity in what she was doing. So this is, well, we're going to do a spoiler review of this one too. It is 10 Things Ahead About You. It is a reworking of Taming of the Shrew, and that is why we played in high school classes till the end of time. <laughs> Essentially, Jessica and Lev's character, Cameron, falls in love with Bianca, who is not allowed to date at the behest of her father until her older sister, Cat, played by Julia Stiles, also dates. Um, there is Joey, an absolutely awful individual who Cat hates and is lusting after Bianca. And Jessica Cameron has the bright idea, oh, wait a minute. Um, if I pay, you know, Australian over here, Heath Ledger, to take out, or if I get him, Joey, to pay. I think Heath William Ledger. had the idea, right? Yeah, William had the, the David Cromwell's yes, character. David Cromwell. Yeah, so yeah. it's actually quite a complicated plot. Yeah, so if I get Joey to pay this guy to take out Cat, I can then woo Bianca, and things escalate and spiral and go out of control from there. Um, this may be, I think, among many, still one of the most popular teen romantic comedies. Certainly, it is inspired in of parody, including a great movie with oh, Chris. Yeah, your, your own Chris Evans a couple of years from now. And yeah, I remember watching this uh, when it came out. I remember, you know, sitting with a bunch of friends at the house we were watching it for the first time. And I liked it then. I'm still very fond of it now. Um, I look back at it now, and one of the main key relationships of the film doesn't hold up for me. I think it's very poorly managed. But the main relationship, uh, the main dynamic between the two stars, Heath Ledger and Julia Stiles, I think I found as compelling and as interesting and often as funny as ever. They had great chemistry. They do. They do. They do. And, and actually, Julia Stiles, her, the dialogues given to her as a very witty, very sarcastic uh, you, lead protagonist oh, was very funny. Oh, the one line was amazing. It's, it's, interesting, mystique, yeah. it's interesting in 2019 to watch her give her um, opinion at the writing class about why are we listening to a yeah, dead, uh, misogynistic dead, dead white no no yeah. a misogynistic guy it's the patriarchal system <laughs> yeah. he was and and she dragged picasso as well so it was oh, definitely yeah. like shades of nanette that that is true but also at the same time <laughs> the, t- the teacher also acknowledging that and be like yes i know cad but we're still going to study it because you just are he didn't he didn't really he was just uh, kind of like not real like he, he didn't go that deeply into it I know. he knew he was more interested in calling out the three dudes at the front of the class who were just uh 
getting on his nerves the whole time. But yeah, like sure. but, uh, but on, I think we will t- discuss the film in greater detail. But one thing I really want to touch on, I think this film does better than any high school set comedy I've seen. And you look at how badly it's done in films like Grease and most other teen comedies, in that the school had personality. Uh, the characters surrounding it, consistent things that were cropping up all the time, um, little quirks happening in the background or the foreground. I can't recall as vivid an environment being created for a teen film in any other circumstance. It does, yeah, it does have a lot of character. I, I agree with that. Um, but it's interesting because in some, this film is very light and breezy and enjoyable to watch, but in some ways it goes into the realm of cartoony. You know, like it's a cartoon world within the, the school environment, like some of the slapstick gags. Yeah, oh, it's, it's um, strange. Yeah. David Crumholtz flying with the motorcycle yeah, yeah. off um, yeah, exactly. the entire trashing or of the, the guy, quote unquote nerd's house, or the guy getting the arrow stuck in his butt. Like, oh yeah, that that should have got you know a lot more attention. Like you don't just fire yeah. up an arrow, Julia Stiles. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and it and recreated it in another film, Princess Diaries. Uh, not that far after, but anyway, um, look, arrows and butts is a thing. Yes. What got me about this in retrospect, though, is that the relationship between Cameron and Bianca. Cameron is, okay, being a 16 or whoever it was, no excuse for this. He was a terrible person. Everything about the, fil- about the film was awful. Yeah. And he's quote-unquote redeeming arc at the end. No, she should have said, I can't believe what you did to me. Get stuffed. Certainly, what Cam- was What was his... Re- his um, redeeming arc at the end? Oh, um, you know, professing... Uh, when Heath Ledger says to him, look, if you like her, just go tell you like her. And then him just having the courage to say, I like you. And in the context of her knowing what he did to trick her and her sister, was like, oh, okay, this guy genuinely likes me. Yeah. I'm going to decide to date him now. This is one of the things that I think bugged me about the film and it wouldn't go down the same way now, which is that Cameron and also William are portrayed in a sympathetic light. And at the end, when the movie's cheering you on because Joey... You know, Joey got punched and you get to feel good that a bad end comes to him. He's not, in terms of the moral, outside of doing things like drawing a dick on people's face or just generally being a dick, what he does morally isn't worse than what Cameron or arguably Patrick are doing. He's, you know, they're everyone. Everyone is bad. So they they shouldn't have gotten away or they wouldn't get away scot-free, I think, if this movie were made today. People would be think more from the mentality of this is a man manipulating women and getting away with it. Well, I don't think... Well, th- which is kind of the basis of Taming of the Shoe anyway. So I yeah. guess in that way it is kind of true to the aesthetic of it. But it's still very clever in how it repositions that um, morality in, in that kind of uh, setting of the high school situation and also in how what is acceptable and what's unacceptable between, you know, teenage boys and girls in terms of consent and otherwise. Well, they certainly changed the ending, but I think to the film's credit, though, with the Patrick-Cat uh, relationship, they established shows, a lot more that, yeah. hey, I've yeah. changed, and he does show himself, attempting to redeem himself. But no, So I think more is established into how the Cat character feels about him, her journey and how she sees him, and yeah. certainly the poem sequence at the end, among many other moments, uh, signify that in spite of what he's done and she certainly by no means forgives him she recognizes that okay this is a person i am willing for reasons i've you know considered to have potentially a relationship with which is a very different dynamic from any other in yeah. the film that poetry scene sits weird to me you know because it's it's almost like her character's flipped too much the other way and i think there's a general difficulty in the writing to um convincingly portray her transformation it's almost like she goes straight from super harsh intellectual um, to sort of like giggling schoolgirl at some of the times, like when the band come in. I don't believe that the character we've seen at the beginning would act with so much um, 
like such a lack of cynicism to that such an innocent you know yeah i loved it you know she flashes her breasts to the um the detention guy and i don't know it's like i i feel like the character who the way she paints herself at the beginning wouldn't do those sorts of things and she wouldn't get up and cry and run out of the room it it almost is like the old school shakespeare feeling of like behind the tough exterior there's just an innocent little girl kind of thing yeah but also at the same time i feel a lot of that the cartooniness comes to the fore i was going example, to say that yeah it's super cartoony uh, with, with uh, let's say heath ledger's character going all out and singing that song in the most famous sequence of probably all high school it's made of the classic yeah, a yeah. more classic than what ever Essentially. was but also at the same time it, it's also like he commits to it like you know there's really a sincerity yeah. to it he was 20 he was yeah, 20 it was funny when, when the, the whole thing about are you a pretty guy I was like dude exactly dude yeah. even Joseph Gordon-Levitt should know right now that you're looking at one of the prettiest men ever right? <laughs> which is interesting because he's, yeah. he's gorgeous portrayed, in this movie he's portrayed right? as this kind of rough and tough character and there's at no point am I no never did I believe that actually yeah. he's one of the characters who I think such a in movies, he'd be on near the top of my list for characters I'd like to have a beer with. He seems like such a top bloke, right? But <laughs> yeah. Also, oh, yeah, yeah. The introduction, just like you know, getting. I, I don't. Know, I think later later he's the iteration scary of guy, him. But, sure. yeah, but no, he like, turns he, out that he's like he's actually just a super great dude. We're told that he's been in prison the whole time. He's just watching Home and Away, and he's catching yeah, it. At the beginning, he's using the drill on the on the book, which I don't you know think vibes with the way the guy that betrays <laughs> is betrayed earlier, and flicking the flame. And, yeah, at first, it's like at first they. They say, "Oh, I hear he's really scary," and they show him doing scary things, and then he just completely stops doing them. But also, but they do establish that he's someone who wants to be seen as a tough guy. They establish that very well. Yeah, like I can't be seen still. a club skunk, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But but also, I think what, which is why it works the dynamic between Cat and him. She can three right through that, especially in that scene at the music store, and like he comes with the car and it's like you know, uh, the and you know he thinks like, oh, you know aren't you going to go out with me? And she's like, oh yeah, I want you, oh baby, oh baby, in this very sarcastic way. Actually, it's you, really, you, really fun. You mean the bookstore, but actually my yeah, favourite scene in the movie is actually the music store where he goes up to her and he doesn't actually say anything. He just watches her playing, which obviously leads to the final sequence at the end. Um, going back to how characters can just flip and decide, oh, um, I'm happy and going to smirk at this now. There's, Actually, a similar sequence on rewatching Cool Tensions is a very similar sequence when Reese Witherspoon, Ryan Philip Hare driving in a car. It's the inversion of that, but um, suddenly he's this, you know, rough, tough, well, not rough guy, but super smarmy guy. And, and then her making these faces gets him different. And I think that actually sold that dynamic just a little bit better. Um, I don't have a problem with how they did intending to help you because of the amount of time we spent with these characters, but I certainly appreciate that um, some of the about turns that. Uh, particularly Cat goes in a very sudden moment, um, aren't as convincing as a number of the character arcs in the film. But yep. um, it did, in the context of what was a really, it remains a really solid film, it really didn't bother me Look, too much. It is a very funny and charming film, and it bruises by. I think there's a lot of um, creativity in how they've shifted Shakespeare to the high school context. It's funny how much it works, but at the same time, there, you get the extra level, level of appreciation. Um, at how they've directly woven in, you know, like a Shakespearean yeah. comedy character like William into yeah. this fabric. You, how it, it still is, it's not a lo- it's a, actually quite a faithful modernization that even keeps some of the structure of the conversations and the character beats. Yeah. And if you're into Shakespeare at all, it's pretty amusing to catch some of the ties they make. It is. And, oh, yeah. uh, and it's interesting because the film works not only because of the main characters and the protagonists, but also like Alison Janney's character and other it's characters. such a Shakespeare plot. Yeah. But also <laughs> oh. it's interesting that the, the supposedly supporting cast 
do get a lot to do in this film, which is also very yeah. fun. Mm. And, you know, so it's not as uh, quite straightforward in that sense. Julius Charles also in Othello's adaptation slash, you know, yeah. faithful or not, which wasn't so that bit, great. As in the, in the film adaptation? Yeah. Oh. Another another of uh, Shakespearean things that she was, I think, uh, yeah. Yeah, but is, yeah. it's um, yeah. Like the last, last I, mi- I missed her. Yeah, she was she was a good actress. Well, she she still is a good actress. I just hasn't been in. I haven't seen her in something since the um, the last Bourne film. Fate of most women actresses in Hollywood. Yeah, I still think this is her best performance. I mean, she was very good in Silver Linings Playbook. Certainly, I liked her in the Bourne films, but I haven't seen anything since um. The last, the born, uh, the bad one, the really terrible one with Leisha Vikander from a few years back. Um, The last thing I can't have this film is that I think it's something that you would forget in the context, or I guess not. I certainly didn't notice the first few times I watched it. Um, I didn't notice on rewatching it. It's very cleanly shot. For a, there's not a lot of jump cuts in this film. There's a lot of beautiful just panning moments. Things I hate about you. Yeah. Every it's interesting watching any teen movie from the '90s and seeing how classically they're shot compared to the way things are today. It's this very standard. What back then was considered, I think, um, like the standard invisible style was very spacious and let conversations play out. And over the last 20 years, um, the fast, 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 fast method of mode of editing, which did exist in the 90s for sure, has completely taken over. You know, you never get to just watch a ca- an actor in their environment anymore. Yeah, well, it's more just like close-ups of the face, the people, face, the face, yeah, the face. Pe- people don't enter and exit and, scenes and automatically. Yeah, it's, it's because, awesome. because there's consideration of the space outside the character's face... It allows for all sorts of great character moments like the body language of Heath Ledger on, when he's on dates. You yeah. know, the way he glides around on the swing. Things like that, you know, are only available because they the style was more relaxed. Or just that whole sequence of the party where um, the camera's moving throughout the house and yeah, little you, things are happening. That you see really the adds, couple who keep hooking up. That really adds to that sense of this being um, a char- like the character you talk about in the location, that it feels like a real place you could inhabit. Yeah. And it's amazing that it ha- does have those cartoony um, moments and the cartoon feel like feel to it. But outside of the moment we spoke about with the arrow, um, it still it never crosses the line into being, I can't believe this is a real place for the sake of the film. It's in a really nice place between realism and fantasy. You want an example of how this is done well over long form? I think Riverdale, it doesn't quite match what they did in the course of two hours here, but you see recurring motifs um, throughout the background, and um, there's an investment in the minor characters who pop up only ever so now and then. How great is the dad, by the way, in the in oh. 10 Things I Hate About You? Oh, yeah. This, it's the, it's yeah. funny how the that throwaway you, lines. you can't date thing just completely translates from Shakespearean time to today. Just, just still, You still believe it. <laughs> What's yeah, the line? Yeah. You should have listened. And she said, oh, yeah. I should have listened to my father. Is that what you said? Well, she would have said that if she wasn't, you know, so he, high on medication. Yeah, his performance was fantastic. <laughs> and he sold it. Like, he sold this. I mean, that's such an outlandish role. You can't date until, only can only date at the time your older sister dates. And he was, he, he was the, prof- the dean in Nutty Professor. Like, he's got, he has these great character bits. Um, yeah, it was wow. really good. Yeah. So that was that tells things, things about, about you. you. So that is it's good. It's good. Yeah, which we hated nothing about actually. If we no, didn't hate much. That's true, I didn't hate anything about this movie. No. It's still a movie and um, launched. I think it's in cinemas right now. Heath international so, career. Yeah. It's actually in yeah. cinemas right now. Uh, in event cinemas, it's playing right now. In like twenty years from now, it's actually. There. Oh, awesome! Yes, and cool. it's also playing. Mm-hmm. We'll be playing in June, in ninety nine. 
because oh, yeah. we're not ruining the future. Yes, there will be event cinemas twenty years from now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, what? Yeah, what was? Was there a history? Of, what was it called? Village or Union? Uh, Greater, Greater Union. Union? Greater it was Greater Union. Union. So our next film will be playing in 2019, <laughs> spoiling <laughs> the future at Blacktown Drive-In on the 25th of May. Oh no! Right. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I ever saw it on the big screen. I, I remember we were talking for all intentions. It's strange. I watched this. I'm a pretty serious Buffy fan, but I watched this before I ever watched Buffy. And watching, going back and watching it, having watched, you know, Buffy, it's, I still, it's, she's, she's, a, I think, an underrated in terms of the, her versatility, Sarah Michelle Gellar. She certainly is, I think, the star of this picture. Probably the best performer in this. It also stars Ryan Philippe, Reese Witherspoon, Selma Blair. A few um, interesting pairings there. Some of these actors will go on to do roles together, certainly Legally Blonde. And um, only the year before, or the two years before, suddenly, suddenly, I know what you did last summer. Oh, so underrated as a dream yeah. thriller. And um, and Joshua Jackson from Dawson's Creek and Tara Reid in a small role at the very beginning of the film. Um, this is a adaptation of the novel Dangerous Liaisons. There, there was a film. I didn't know this when I first There's watched two, it. two. Valmont and Dangerous Liaisons both came out around the same time. Val- oh. Yeah, yeah. There was another. Cool, it was one of those like um, Armageddon deep impact. Oh. You know, for all you 1998 listen, 1999 right. listeners, you know. I remember watching Dangerous Liaisons and thinking, wait a minute, this is exactly the same movie. But yes, essentially, um, Sarah Michelle Gellar and Ryan Philippe are step-siblings. They, are very, they have a lot of money and a lot of free time in their hands. They're going to the final year of high school. And as part of a wager between the siblings, Ryan Philippe's character, Sebastian, begins to pursue the Reese Witherspoon character. Um, and this also was one of the most popular teen films of the era. I think remains it probably just kind of quite the question that Tim's head about you does, certainly because of the terrible sequels. I only saw one of them. And I know there was a TV adaptation or a plantier adaptation at one time. Um, aside from uh, Buffy, I think this is Sarah Michelle Gellar's best big screen work. I've never been the biggest fan of Ryan Philippe, though. I felt there were some good sequences he had in the film. I'm um, certainly Selma Blair, underrated as an actress, and uh, we, I would like to see more from her. What did we think of Cruel Intentions. Okay, I'll share a very interesting anecdote about this because I grew up in uh, India, which has weird censorship laws. Uh, so this was considered to be a very risque movie back in the day in 1999. And so young Virat thought, uh, oh my God, what is this movie about? Why is this so considered to be so taboo? So this was showing at the 11 p.m. slot, uh, ta-da-ta-da. And uh, so I, you know, uh, got up one night in the pretext of getting some water from the fridge and decided to be like, oh, okay, cool, you know, I'm just going to watch it on mute. Uh, and uh, I realized I went through the whole movie and I'm like, nothing kind of happened, which I was expecting. So, But all the good parts were edited out, which weren't really, you know, there wasn't really any good parts anyway. But apparently it was just like, you know, it was quite a dousing moment for me. I want to thank SBS for late night sessions of Clockwork Orange and Channel 7 for late night sessions of The Sounds of the Lambs <laughs> because when I was closer to the age, I would not have got to see those films and I'm still pretty glad I did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, cruel intentions. Um, it's ridiculous. It's a strange movie in a lot of ways. Um, I think it's not ridiculous enough. I think <laughs> I, watching this, um, because I hadn't really seen it before. I'd seen you know like most of it on TV years ago, but I didn't really... I was I was too young. Oh, it gets played so it got it played, played all so much. It was like Forrest Gump. It's like the right. stand go to Friday night eight thirty click. <laughs> yeah, and watching it now, I guess people must just love it as a camp classic. I think it sort of has that reputation. 
but I don't find it campy enough. Yeah, it's, I want it's, it to be. It's not the simple favor. Like I would have loved yeah, to be. I, that I wish. Campy. It, I, yeah, I agree. I would have <laughs> loved this plot being, you know, is so ridiculous. Yeah, apart from that seesaw so, sequence between Selma Blair and uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, or Reese Witherspoon and Sarah Michelle Gellar, I'm forgetting. Uh, yeah. And you know, it, it needs to be that campy. It needs yeah. To be that funny. They, I mean, the ending kind of almost got there when he got hit. Spoilers! Suddenly, we're spoiling cruel tensions. Fight if you haven't, to a, if you haven't seen yeah. it, we're spoiling it now. Fight leads to a guy getting hit by a car and dying for the you know sad ending. Like it's it's d- definitely verging on that level, the level of camp I want it to be at. But as a whole, <laughs> I just find it to be kind of dull. Like um, I get bored of these characters because they're all very one note, and it it all you know it's it's all very predictable until you know the twist happens. But the you can't care about Ryan Felipe enough to actually feel anything for him or the relationship because it's as I said it's such a one note kind of character and performance and also he's just a dick you know you you don't he his everything about the way the character is presented just means that you're not able to think or oh, maybe he's a good guy at heart like you are for example about Patrick in Ten Things I Hate About You but what's what I like about this and it only really comes in the last three minutes is that you find that okay and i agree with you the the audience the most empathetic figure is the reese witherspoon character by the end of the film you come to empathize with sarah michelle geller as she recreates the excellent glenn close scene with the single tear you come to empathize with ryan Philippe by pure virtue of the fact that yes as ridiculous in some ways as it was he met this very sudden end and it is implied very strongly that selma blair and the reese witherspoon character um have changed and not for the better and that inversion I thought it of- was suggested the Reese Witherspoon character. I, I don't think it's suggested she's changed not for the better. Um, I think the shot of the the very conspicuous shot of the diary in the front seat of a car of of his car and what was his car and the whole basis of the bet and then going up and her just going out of town. It felt very similar to what they were trying to do at the beginning and end of the second terrible Cruel Intentions film. That was a lot more obvious hammer on the. You know, Nail on the head, ham, sledgehammer. Here's what we're going for, but it was. I've always felt it was very much okay that she is. Um, look at the flip, or not flip, but the trajectory her character will very likely go on in the near future to become like another version of the siblings. Not necessarily like them, but um, the uh, that she would that she would take um, solace or inspiration or anything from that terrible book, that diary, or from their actions now that she has a complete record yeah, and she, access she, to she's it. Not, she's not naive anymore that she's actually a bit more uh, aware of her own amorality than anything else. I wouldn't say anything that comes out of naivety, but the fact that she is, at least as the camera and the, and the staging of the scenes uh, suggests, that she is willing to and plans to be, in some senses, uh, much more amoral than she had other... Had, or you know, to I, did, actor. I didn't see the movie on that level. I just thought at the end she's... Been, I, I thought it was just working on the simple level of like she's done the right thing by her love, you know, like and he's still with her, which is how it's represent, you know, represented by the diary being in the car. Because the way the editing works, you see a shot of, you know, remember the time we were together, and then it cut cuts to her driving again, and now in the flip position in the car where he was. Now there's the diary. So all she's got of him is this terrible diary listing all these terrible things. I know, but I think I think it, it's just a dumb symbolic like, you know, his real spirit, his true self was with me. Um, I wouldn't say that would be suggested by um, how how Reese Witherspoon conducted herself in that sequence. 
I'd say the way that she, you know, um, shows the diary to everyone. No, I know. I'm talking about in the car when it. I think she's she's portraying her the character's actions more nonchalant and carefree than necessarily invested in the departed well, the recently editing, departed. Well, uh, the whatever editing Ryan go, was. goes against what you're saying because it cuts to like it's a memory or like. As she's driving along, it cuts back to the sequence earlier in the film where she was driving with Ryan Philippe. It keeps cutting back. So it's definitely suggesting that what she's doing is in some way motivated or connected to him and that he's on her mind. But I think it's further bolstered by look at the way the Selma Blair character is acting and is very willing to, and yes, she feels that she has the right to um, act out against the Sharon Michelle Geller character by the because of what she did to her, but um, she's also very willing to, um, with reckless abandon, just spread these... Uh, quite horrible details around. I'm, I'm not sure. I think the movie portrays that as the just desserts because the Sarah Michelle Gellar character is never... I, I disagree with you when you said before that you could empathize with her because of a single tear. I think the way this movie paints her is just the bitch. She's the bitch and she gets what's coming to her. I, th- I honestly think that's the level of this movie's working on. Oh, no, I not think... On, I don't think it's no, anywhere near as deep as you're saying. See, see, I look at the Sarah Michelle Gellar character, I mean, I think more in terms of the Dangerous Liaison sequence where there was that outstanding moment where, and it was more obvious, where she goes to the opera and the, everyone just stops and stares at her. And the idea that, yes, she's done terrible things, but she has lost every single one of her compadre's friends, whatever. But the movie never gives you a scene before that that shows her ever being having another side to her. Yes, it does. What's it, do, it does at the moment when um, she... Last time she sees Sebastian, when she says to him, you know, I, I ruined your life because I threatened your reputation. And as she, he walks out, she says, goodbye, Sebastian. And it's not a simple, I'm cold and I'm removed and I never want to see you again. It's I, I know that I have lost that I'm t- I'm have misgivings that I have I've had to reflect now that I yes I have achieved this but I've also lost one of the closest people in my life an significant person in my life and I know that I would never going to have that same relationship again but she did it but she did it but you could see that she said the character certainly had misgivings and conflict was conflicted but about it I don't I didn't read it like that it this like I said I view this movie as very campy and when she said you know she's so evil in the way she talks in that scene like don't you see the idiot was you you know like but it's clear the character is putting it on to a great extent is it what she she's shown I, at the I end I think like, that's part of the bad acting even at the she's end she's not a bad actress it's Sarah Michelle Gellar we're talking about Buffy no, no, even no she at the might end, not be but I think in this movie she's Hamming it up to that extent. Even at the end, it's not implied that she's super, she's super like sorry for what she did because the point is that she still went on maintaining the lie after she ruined her brother's life, and then you know finally the truth comes out. The movie is definitely on the side of spreading the truth. Um, I honestly think the way the movie is celebrating it at the end, like the spreading the words about her. I think I don't think it's portraying her as feeling sorry for what she did. I think it's saying that here's a person who, whatever you may feel about them, is going to be alienated for what they feel is the rest of their life. And that, She's on so any level, monstrous, you can't. monstrous, though. And, and in, in, the, in the film's depiction, like I'm saying, like Ryan Felipe gets to have, but I'm actually a good guy at heart. And she's the one who, like, she is the one. It's it's like, you know, they ordered me to do it, sir. You know, she's the one who. Um, oh, because that great sequence where she's talking about, you know, what it's like to have to be this, like, perfect person every day. Yeah. Yeah. She, you know, but she's the one who, you know, maintains the cruelty when he has misgivings. You know, the movie is basically like, and I don't buy his redemption. The performance. No, neither. It's the performance is completely stupid, 
but it's like, but because, <laughs> you know, it, it's so one note, Ryan Felipe. Sarah Michelle Gellar is the best in show. Um, yeah, he's terrible. And then, at the, you know, God. No, I didn't like, I didn't <laughs> like, like it in this. He's terrible, but because much, he fell in much. love with a woman, yeah. now he gets to be redeemed a, as a good guy, whereas because she's still just manipulating people and sleeping with people for fun, you know, she is worthless. I don't know. <laughs> this film was not operating at that deeper level, to be honest. I, like, this film was going for just camp. I totally agree. I mean, it's it's just going for camp. It's not trying to, like have these moral arguments about what is right, what is wrong, no. what these characters deserve. No, it's not. It, it's not. It's not even about, you know, what do these characters actually deserve, either in isolation or in totality. It's, it's about just, being scandalous. Yeah, it's just about cruel intentions, you know. It's just that. It's like, ooh, look at this. Look at what these characters get up to and what is this immorality, but not really, because they're just horrible people being, hor- being horrible things to each other. Can I... But, I was just... No, I... I what were you going to say, Glenn? <laughs> I, yeah, I, 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 was, I was simply going to say that I think we have to draw a distinction between the characters who are portrayed as completely immoral and without redeeming features, like the was it Joey from Dawson's Creek, who is giving no redeeming arc, and Ryan Philippe, who we see throughout the film actually, as much as I did in the Joy's performance so much, does begin to recognize what I am doing is wrong. I'm going to take massive steps to redeem myself. And they do invest a lot in that, um, the misgivings of the performance notwithstanding. I think this is we're thinking way too deeply about it's this. It's such movie. a bad movie. I think like it shows how simple it is, just even in the way that that final yeah. death of of Ryan Felipe is it's, handled. And like they go, there's a fist fight about you. You know, you said this. She said you did this thing. I'm going to punch you. And yeah. oh, melodramatically, yeah. I have to save. Like it's just so stupid. And that, but, when a movie has that kind of thing in it, it makes yeah. me, you know, not inclined to take it as a deep. Anything. The appeal, like, the, did, did, and, like, the appeal even, of this movie is just camp. But it's, it's not it, trying it, to go for anything more The way than that. that, you know, even this world where Annette is becoming friends with Sebastian, I didn't believe in. I don't I don't believe by that her character nothing, would ever nothing, hang out with a guy who acts like this. Like, none of the characterizations. Nothing, nothing in this movie is believable. Yeah, apart believable. from the fact that Felipe and Sarah Michelle Gellar's so character are fine. rich brats. Apart from that, I buy nothing. In it's the fine. Movie. It just leads to it becoming boring because the characterization's all so kind of one note. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't believe that character at the beginning would have spent any time with the absolutely awful Ryan Flippy character. Also, no. one thing that always bothered me about this, and I, I, I sound like an adult now, where were the parents? Yeah, Even at the end, where were the parents that's in what's this interesting entire to movie? Me. It's a movie about... It's it's a strange way of translating. Um, it's nowhere near as successful at updating a classic text than 10 Things I Hate About You is. Because in that, there's something kind of amusing about how it works as a Shakespeare Put on and it works as a high school movie. There's no reference to Dangerous Liaison in this, in the slightest. Then there's no, but if anything, it's more like Dangerous Liaisons in the kind of like the courtly red curtained. We're walking around and we're plotting out, we're gossiping about people and we're trying to manipulate the courses of people's lives. That's something I believe in um, when we're talking about courtly wankers who have nothing else to do but to you know amuse you know cause destruction so that there's some kind of shake up in their bo- in their boringly perfect lives it's not something i can buy teenagers doing like 10 thing i know teenagers can be very cruel but i think this is a kind of like i don't know i, I don't buy this as like teenage meddling and because their world feels like a courtly courtly world it doesn't feel like the way that rich teenagers from the way they interact the things they go out to do um, even this general plan. 
This is from the era, and I'm not yeah, excusing this. The things I hate about you but, is the kind, like, I'll pay you to go on a date with her, is the kind of thing I can yeah, find teenagers yeah, yeah. doing. And, that level of manipulation. And you know? I, I'm not excusing this, but it, I think it's simply because it's from that era where it was completely acceptable for um, people in their mid to late 20s to play teenagers and therefore make those sorts of dramas feel that much more And convincing. therefore parents aren't around. <laughs> therefore parents aren't around. Just even for the funeral, where were they? We were, we were able to have slightly younger looking people in 10 Things I Hate About You because... Um, you know the, that movie's PG. Yeah, and yeah, look, cruel intentions. I don't think it's going to be. I, not, not to me. I think to generally, it's ever going to be as appealing as Ten Things I Hate About You. I don't treat it as such a camp classic. I treat it as a drama. I think it is. It's it, so ridiculous. <laughs> up, up, like it, it's. I, oh god. Uh, sure, the, the sure it's a little outrageous. The plot of Ten Things I Hate About You is. Oh, so outrageous. But, but Ten Things I Hate About You presents itself as like a breezy comedy. <laughs> You know, and even throws in things like, hey, we know it. This is outrageous by having those cartoony stunts yeah. in the background. Whereas this is kind of like... They establish that they are dilettantes. Go- they really go into that detail. This is this is really focusing in on the, like, ooh, get engaged in the plot. And the plot's just ridiculous. That's why I see it as a camp classic. And the characters, yeah, people don't have enough humanity for it to register as a drama. Like, there's more humanity in some... like In The Matrix. There's, and there's more humanity in 10 Things I nice. Hate About You, which is a comedy. But yeah. no, you know, The Matrix is also goddamn ridiculous and like, I'm going to fall in love with you because you're the special one. Because I was told in a prophecy that I would fall in love with you. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you have to be the one because I'm going to fall in love with you. And I'm no, not no, even no, no, sure. No, that's all, actually, that's all what she said, but Graz, yeah, go on. It also, like, I'm not even sure that I'm in love with you, but I have to be because, you know, I want to kiss so you now. Immature. So I'm now in love with you because I've it's just okay kissed when you. You're 12 that's years what old. she said. <laughs> she said the opposite. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So but th- girls, they're so hard to figure out, man. Especially wow. if you're like twelve. So here, here, here's here's three guys. <laughs> great, great. Just just uh, wonderful. Dude, the wonderful. acting in Cruel Intentions is so bad across the like. It's it's good in that kind of like bitchy level of you know camp, but I don't think it's pushed far enough. But it's just a badly made movie in so many ways. The music, man. It's this really cheesy kind of like '90s R&B instrumental stuff going on but not in a good way. And then... And um, the Verve. Don't forget the Verve. I was going to get to... Yeah, the, <laughs> the pop songs are so of the time when it was a big thing to have the CD of the movie, like music from the motion picture. It's something that's been destroyed by the death of music industry, <laughs> the death of albums. Um, you know, so we get these awkwardly placed pop songs in the background so they can justify their appearance on the soundtrack, which are always mismatched to the tempo or the mood of the scene. Sometimes <laughs> they're played the verve. quietly. The verve worked, but sometimes they're played quietly enough in the background that it's you can tell they're thinking like, oh God, we're mandata- mandated to put this song here, but it doesn't fit. Let's make it as quiet as possible so it doesn't take over too much of the mood look, I, that it completely clashes with. Look, I appreciate that. And the can't be aesthetic were to get in the crowd for Buffy and I know what you did last summer. and But I still, I think, can appreciate that it wasn't a prestige drama. It was never going to be a prestige drama. It was never going to win the Academy Awards. Oh, no, but, it's simple... there, there, but there was, I think, more of an investment in characters. I just find it boring because you get like you get who the characters are and they don't reveal much depth. And when they do try to reveal much depth, like the transformation of Ryan Felipe, it's completely unbelievable. So it's only interesting to watch people play out their dramas if there's some kind of dramatic tension in it. And I felt like the, the dumbness eventually sucked all the dramatic tension out of the premise for me. Because at the end of the day, like, do you really care about Reese Witherspoon losing her reputation, the big stake for her character? No, it's basically, you know, as as a... Uh, you, so you mean the 
Sarah Michelle Gellar character. No, I meant well, both of the, for both of them, it's about reputation, right? Like I am the class president, or I am the esteemed virgin who wrote an article about how great that is. Um, I think it was for, I think for her character, it was very much about you know being how she wanted to be treated by a prospective partner more than anything else. However, she's like a celebrity for writing an article about you know, like like she is known for writing an article in a magazine <laughs> about keeping your virginity, which I I think. I agree that she does actually stand for something, but at the end of the day, it is you know part of the threat um, was that that reputation would be destroyed for her. It's it is more I agree corrupting who she really is, but still. This is a way more intense discussion about cruel intentions that I was like I have that not has ever been had. But also like I have not analyzed this movie it's such to a this stupid kind movie. of level. Yeah, but that's the thing. I am just happy to see this as a stupid Friday night movie, which you don't put your mind to. Like, did anyone buy Ryan Felipe's character at all? No, his mannerisms? But, like, but that's the thing. Like, you don't he's care. He's a great actor. But his, it's such a weird character. Yeah, but like, why do we... Like his, his, we're not expecting Seb- realism. Actually, Sebastian, like, how, how did Sarah Michelle Gellar say it? Sebastian. She had a great, mm-hmm. she had a great intonation. Right. Yeah, but like, are we expecting realism in Cruel Intentions? No, no. I don't. No. But it sounds like Glenn does. I don't, I don't, think, <laughs> yeah. I don't expect realism. I, make, I, I expect in this... I, I got... In this film, I believe, a mix of camp and drama. More dramatic than they certainly went for in the precursors for each what each of those actors were known. And I appreciated that. I was able to engage with it. I think most people were engaged with it certainly at the time, I think more, on a different level. I don't think the film would be... I don't think the film would be released today in its current form. I don't think it would be nearly as popular had it been released today in its current form. It would form. be like a Hallmark Channel movie if it were made today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, it's, uh, but with Jennifer Lewitt, Jennifer Hewitt, Jennifer Love, Love Hewitt. Hewitt playing yeah, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar's role. I, she seems to be in every Hallmark movie. Oh. Well, they were they were all teamed together back in the day because it was Jennifer Love Hewitt, Ryan Phillippe, and Sarah Michelle Gellar and Freddie Prinze Jr. Back yeah, in, it reminds me of one of my favorite uh, movies with Jackie Chan, The, the Tuxedo. Frat Pack. Yeah, actually, can I say pack? that I movie know. had a really it was really well plotted. It still is. I never saw the sequel. Um, I know what you did last Which summer. One? Oh yeah, I only saw it for the first time recently, actually. Yeah. Well. So. Yeah, that is Cruel Intentions. It is at the, at the drive-in coming in up May. soon in May. 10 Things Hand About You is playing both yeah. in 1999 and now in cinemas, apparently. Yeah. And The Matrix is everywhere. Yeah, lots of <laughs> Matrix showings have been happening. We are in The Matrix. It's, it, well, it's Sydney. It's appropriate. You know, Sydney was used really well in The Matrix. I think it adds a lot to the character of the oldest sandstone, um, some of the really interesting... Always, when I walk around that area of Sydney think, man, this would look good on film. And it's funny, I'd forgotten how well it's used in The Matrix. So now that I know those streets better, watching it again now, it's just, wow. You know? uh, actually, I've got a question for you. Sydney does look beautiful. Which film uses Sydney better, Matrix or Mission Impossible 2? The Matrix. Okay. The Matrix. I mean, Sydney Impossible 2, Mission Impossible 2 turned La Perouse into this like <laughs> fort for a supervillain, which was, which it granted is very, very funny. But as, as Sean from Melbourne, hi Sean, um, from, uh, from Movie Babble, pointed, another Bloody Movie podcast, pointed out there is a scene under the bridge at the end of Mission Impossible 2 where a character is tossing an AFL ball like it's an American football. And now that oh, yeah, I watch yeah, it, yeah. it's, it's so very funny. distracting. And so, no, <laughs> for that simple reason, I'm going to say that, uh, no, it's a, it's definitely... Because yeah, they fly over Town Hall, they spend time in Chinatown, St. James. Till to it's this day, how... when I have friends come over from overseas, I take them to Modern Place and walk past the fountain. Hey, it's the Matrix fountain. It's interesting how they the completely Matrix committed fountain. to Sydney as how it looks like. Like, not just we shot in Sydney. When the uh, Morpheus is saying, Neo, this is our world, we see a flyover of Sydney. 
Like they really committed to the visual aesthetic of Sydney. Do you remember yeah. the scene? Like yeah. When, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. It's, it's nice. It's like, oh, yep, there's Centerpoint Tower. And like destroying half of, you know, um, Circular Key. There's such an interesting look to um, Sydney streets with heavy film noir aesthetics. Yeah. I really liked the film noir look of this in Bound, by the way. I like how they pushed that further while also putting in cyberpunk elements. I wish The Matrix were more, more film noir-y because what's there gives it a lot of its identity in the first Matrix and kind of went away later on. You know, like those early scenes running from Agent Smith, um, like that, that dark lighting, because like you, paranoia. You, you look at the later Matrix films where it appears more to be set in an American city, like a very nondescript seven-style American city. And it's slicker and brighter. It doesn't have the hard edges in the visuals that the original Matrix had. And Sydney was a big part of that. Yeah, it had, it had the personality. As I was in terms of things had at you, you set up the environment around you and have a consistent approach. It can be very rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's... That was intense, guys. That was pretty intense. Cruel yeah. Intentions was the most cruel intentioned uh, film fight club. I know. I, I was just like, yeah. what? <laughs> on what level? On what parable oh, is Glenn nice. watching it, this movie at? And I was just like, I just watch it as a very camp. I have not. Like, I don't think this movie is yeah. existing on the level of empathizing for the villain. Yeah, especially the kind of moral stakes seems, that yeah. Glenn the, is seeing. The, the, I'm just like, okay. it's the whole crux of Dangerous Liaisons. What they translated, not as well as it, as it was done in Dangerous Liaisons, I grant you, but that is the that is the base you know, investment supposed to have in the film. And yes, um, it can be shallow to a great extent, but and I certainly don't have the empathy for a lot of the characters I did back when I watched 20 years ago for the first time. But still, I felt it did its job relatively well. Okay, and you can yeah. judge yourself with the Blacktown Drive-in. Yeah, I have to go there. I really want to see it. Yeah, um, yeah. car car radio. Yeah. Speak. But I, what I really recommend is bringing speakers that you can plug into your car radio. Right. Or a radio. Yeah. Yeah. So you can then just really blast it up. Yeah, yeah that's that's the loudest you're going to get at Blacktown Drive-In, um, <laughs> because you know the speakers from the screen are pretty quiet. Your car radio you might not like. So yeah, bring speakers. Yeah. That's that's our Film Fight Club hot tip. Yeah. So we'll be back next week, back in 2019. Uh, we love doing these back-in-time TARDIS reviews. So if you do have a year or a date or a film, we like to go back to a specific date and, and around year. Let's face it, this won't be the last 1999 retrospective. There's so many things we have to cover later in the year. Oh, God. Fight Club comes out. American Beauty is was referenced. Being John um, Malkovich. Magnolia. Magnolia. Uh, Election comes out next Election, week. Yep. The Mummy. Um, we talked about Phantom Menace. Uh, I don't think we'll review The Spy Who Shagged Me, but oh, that comes out later dude, in the I, year. I, would, I actually think we should review Phantom yes. Menace and The Spy Who Shagged Me. Oh, they, yes, they come out within a couple of weeks of each other. Actually, you know what? Mm. Actually, Analyze This and Lockstock came out on the same day. I prefer mm. Analyze This. Yeah, same. Yeah. I, I don't like this films too much. Um, what else came out? American Pie, Eyes Wide Shut. Eyes Wide Shut, yeah. Wow. That's, that's Shut, a big yeah. one. And um, what are the, I think, Chris, I know we were talking about this a little while ago, what are the most underrated comic book films of, or, or superhero films of Mystery ever? Men? Yeah, Mystery, Mystery Men. Mystery Men, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that needs to be rewatched. haven't seen that. It's wow. it's it's worth a watch. It's a uh, it's it's funny how much it is of a pre an unintended precursor to so much of what we're seeing today. Interesting. So, um, thank you for joining us on our extended 1999 discussion. Um, we're going to leave you with uh, uh, someone who apparently wrote a big song about 1999. <laughs> I think it's popular, <laughs> something like that. Um, this has been Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans, and Vrutney Rue. Have a wonderful night. Bye-bye. Goodbye.